you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We get to do the sermon now. Uh, that, that says John 3, um, but you can actually just go on to the next slide. It should be Matthew. Um, I knew there was something, something didn't sit right during worship, and I couldn't remember what it was with the slides, and it was that right there. But Matthew 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. And if you were here last week, you're like, okay, Drew, like, uh, you know, I know you're getting lazy, just don't want to make new slides, um, but we are talking about the same passage again. So we usually only get one Sunday uh, talking about the Magi, and I just think that they are incredibly, the story is incredibly important uh, and profound and just, it's just moving uh, to where we're going to do it two Sundays in a row. Uh, so hopefully you will know more than you ever have about these um, kind of very unique uh, characters in the, in the story of God. So this is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, and then I'll pray for us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the, for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we hold the Bible up to start the year, and we say like we do Sunday after Sunday, we affirm that this is your word inspired, authoritative. It doesn't sit under us. We sit under it. Father, I pray that you would use the word today and throughout this calendar year to, to mold us as your people, to challenge us where we have become complacent in our following of Jesus, to remind us of the things we've forgotten, to convict us of sin, to reassure us of our salvation in Jesus. Father, use the word to unify us as a body. Use the word to sanctify us, to become more like Christ. And Father, I pray all of those things specifically as we look at the story of the Magi again today. Inspire us. Turn our affections away from the feeble things that 
we give our affections to and turn them towards the beauty of who you are. Father, I pray for our church and those who are hurting. I pray for those that are going through difficult times. May your kingdom come. I thank you for those that have experienced great joy in this season. And we praise you for that. I praise you even this morning. Valentine sharing that he's got a, a new job. Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for relationships over the break. Relationships that I heard that were reconciled. I praise you for marriages that were four months ago going through difficult times, but today are walking with wind in their sails. Father, you are a good God. And we give you thanks, giving and praise for the ways you work in our midst. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to do an exercise to kick the sermon off today. I want you to think back to a favorite concert that you have been to. Think back to the moment halfway through the concert, the opener has already done his or her thing, and the person that you came to watch or to listen to or the band is on stage, and halfway through their set, the crowd is 100% into it. They're killing it up on stage, and I want you to think back that's an experience of yours to what it felt like. The feelings that you had. Maybe it was the moment where you're singing in unison your favorite song with thousands of people. Or maybe it wasn't a concert for you. Maybe it was an incredibly moving story captured on film. A story that moved you in the theater. Made you feel something deep inside. Or maybe it was a sporting event for you. For me, when I thought about this, I remember back to the Atlanta Hawks playoff game in 2016. Some of you may have actually been there with me on the, at, this, at the stadium. It was game six against the Celtics, and somehow, against all odds, we were the eighth seed. They were the uh, undisputed number one seed. Against all odds, we were giving them a fight in Game 6 to win that game and to potentially force a Game 7. During the game, I remember sitting in the upper deck. I remember we paid $25 per ticket, sitting in the upper deck with thousands of fans, feeling a bond over both our past de decades of disappointments as Hawks fans, but sharing in the hope with all of these strangers that maybe against all odds, the eighth seed beats the one seed. And it was a super tight game. The arena was going bananas. I remember everybody had these thunder sticks that you just bang together. It's like, uh, as parents, it's like, just throw those in the trash on your way out. Don't even bring them home. Uh, they are wonderful at the stadium, horrible in your house. Grown men hugging each other. In the fourth quarter, an entire stadium fixated on our team, fixated against the Celtics. And when the buzzer sounded, they forced Game 7 with a win in Game 6. Spoiler alert, they got destroyed in Game 7. But we experienced this pure happiness. And there's something incredible about these experiences. 
And like I said, it doesn't have to be sports for you. It could be a musical at the Fox. It could be the premiere of a blockbuster movie. It could even be the opera for some of you. In those moments, you felt something that was different from your day-to-day. And I want you to think about that. Take it and stick it in your pocket because we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So last week on Family Sunday, we introduced and talked about the story of the Magi's visit to Jesus. And just what a display it was of God's power and humility in the story of Christ's birth. The same guy that controls the stars in the sky has the humility to be born in a manger in order to love his people perfectly and ultimately to die for them. The story of the birth of Christ is a story of power and humility and true love. But the story of of the Magi to the story that I was struck again this year by just how beautiful, but also how strange this was. Mary and Joseph are coming from a Jewish lineage, meaning they have Jewish ancestors. And these Magi men, to remind you if you weren't here last week, these are not more than likely biblical scholars. They're not more than likely Jewish at all. I mean, that word, the Greek word for magi, the Greek word is M-A-G-O-I. Magio, I think is how we say it, uh, refers to a group interested in predicting the future by a dream interpretation, magic, and other methods such as astrology. Which, yes, explains their interest in the star, but sometimes I think in this story... We get, we, we, we get to the part about the frankincense, the myrrh, and the gold, and we skip over the fact that these dudes were, in essence, magicians of their day. So God has the magicians of their day come visit Jesus. And in Jesus' day, in that time, there's a great empire east of Jerusalem called the Parthian Empire. And the dominant religion, where these men probably came from, was called Zoroastrianism. This is always hard for, you know, she just spells that so quickly. You know, we're doing a sign language. I'm always so impressed. I'm like, how do you interpret Zoroastrianism? She just cranks it out every time. <laughs> Zoroastrianism, not only, not, it's not like, you know, very different. It's a totally different religion. And so this is, they're not, they're just simply not Jewish. They are worshiping another God. And these magi were like priests in that religion. A religion known for astrology, interpretation of dreams, and magic. And these magi were very important people, consulted by kings because of their wisdom and their supposed abilities to interpret those dreams and read the signs in the stars. So the magi's presence gives us this beautiful window into the heart of God, and it marks the the hope of the gospel that is drawing non-Jewish people into the family of God. Remember, Jesus came for all nations, all peoples, all cultures. As Matthew 28 tells us, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Those magi were the group that visited Jesus. And you'll see a picture of them up here. But the other group that, that went to visit Jesus before the magi were who? The shepherds. So these first two groups, the Magi, incredibly educated, 
consulting with kings. And the other group is who? The shepherds. The lowly, dirty, barely educated, looked down upon by society, shepherds. Folks, this is not an accident of God. God brings these people together, shepherds first, then the magi, to meet Jesus in order to show us a picture of the kingdom of God. A picture of the church, really. Or what the church should look like today. In the passage that was read at the end of worship in Galatians 3, we see God's heart for his people. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, as from Galatians 3, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the kingdom of God, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people alike, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, young and old, magi and shepherds. And it's an incredibly beautiful story in Matthew 2. But isn't this a microcosm of the bigger story of God? The big story of God, which I have tried my best to capture in this slide, is that the diverse people of God are being redeemed through Jesus Christ and participating in the restoration of all things. Men and women, this is the big story that God has been writing since before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes. And it's always been the story. 1 Peter 1 tells us that the Father planned for Jesus to provide for our salvation, like when he, after he saw the fall? No. Planned for that from before creation. Ephesians 1 says that God's overarching purpose is to unite all things in heaven and earth to himself through Christ. Redemption. Galatians 4, God sent Jesus at just the right time in history to carry out God's plan. God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 tells us everything God prescribed in the Old Testament was an earthly shadow of the spiritual reality fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled 39 Old Testament prophecies. This, what happened when the shepherds came, then the magi came in redemption. We see the diverse people of God coming together. This was not an accident. This was not plan B or plan C. This was the plan all along. And a key part of this story is bringing together the diverse people of God. Redeemed by Jesus and invited to participate as the church in the restoration of all things. We see this in the Jews and Gentiles. We see it in the Magi and the shepherds, and we see it ultimately in where we are headed as prophesied in Revelation 7. It's going to pop up on the screen here. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count. And we're going to read this next part together. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing right robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, I'll do this by myself, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. This is where we're heading, but in today's world, the life that we have, we have an invitation to live into it in the present. The diverse people of God being redeemed through Jesus Christ, participating in the restoration of all things. So how do we live this out? We can hear this out of sermon. We can see the examples that God gives to the shepherds and the magi. But how do we actually move this direction as a people? I would say that I can, we can try harder. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. But I promise you, the way that we do this for the long term in a sustainable fashion is not by trying harder, but by being absorbed in, into the story of God. Think back onto that concert or that sporting event or that movie or musical that came to mind at the beginning of the sermon. I want you to ask yourself, do you remember that day what you were wearing? You probably don't. In the middle of the gut-wrenching scene of that movie, how concerned were you about how your skin looked that day? Were you an hour into that musical, you're on the edge of your seat, you're enthralled with and moved by the lyrics being sung by those incredibly talented women and men, were you thinking about the balance of your bank account? Probably not. You're enmeshed into the story, moved by it. I mean, when the Hawks fighting off a comeback and Zaza Pachulia wagged his finger in front of Kevin Garnett's face that day, I wouldn't have been able to tell you my middle name if you asked me. I was 100% lost in the story. And the beauty of God's story, the beauty of the diverse people of God being redeemed and being invited into the restoration of all things, is that we aren't just fans in this story. We don't just sit in row C, seat 7, and watch and clap when we're supposed to clap. We get to participate in this bigger story. But in order to participate, we have to take our eyes off the mirror, the, the small stories, the mirror of selfish gain, the mirror of becoming famous, whatever that means in our circles, the mirror of pursuing wealth, beauty, money above all else. There's a quote that I love by my guy Tim Keller that says, the only way to pull your heart off of one beauty is to find a better one. You need the beauty of Jesus coming into the center of your heart that will melt away, melt your heart away from these other, and I'll insert this, lesser things. He goes on to say, it will heal your heart and it will change your heart. When we're grafted into the big story of God, the diverse people of God being redeemed through Jesus, participating in the restoration of all things, we're freed up to pursue what he has called us to pursue. All those passages about he must become greater, we become less, those are invitations to move away from pursuing our glory and invitations to finding true joy in his glory. And as part of, a king, our, of his kingdom, as part of his church, we have the invitation to do this as a diverse kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful picture, but I'm also here to tell you that it's not 
easy. Think about those magi and shepherds. Think about it. Those dudes ended up landing in the same town. Church starts. And somehow they end up serving on their Anglican vestry of the day. It would be a nightmare working through the budget together. Or think about if they came to the church potluck. Magi, being good sports, they scoop up the mince meat. They get the lentil soup. And I guess they're just sitting there going, well, we're going to eat it. We're here. I don't like this. I know what I'm eating now. But the shepherds made it, so I'm here for it. You know, you know those magi are just have their phones out, texting each other at the table like, are we supposed to eat this with a spoon or our hands? What are we doing here? And the shepherds, you know, the first Sunday, those magi rolled in with their highfalutin vest and robes on, that there was eye-rolling going on left and right. In the early church, the Jews and Gentiles, the Jews had all the dietary laws and restrictions. But now Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. But the reality is that had to look like something. And it was messy. I mean, potlucks, speaking of potlucks, potlucks were so hard to figure out in the early church. They had chunks of epistles written to the churches on how to do meals together. The Apostle Paul had to come in and constantly be giving advice and counsel to the early church because it was so hard for them to practically be one church together. When we lean into being the diverse people of God, it comes with bumps along the way. And it's about, it's about embracing the differences in our culture, being curious we look around the room being curious about our different backgrounds, our different traditions, while also sharing our own. It means being able to say, I don't fully understand this about your past, but I'd love to learn more. I'm going to tell you a story about a funeral that I did when I was early on as a pastor. And, and I've done you know dozens of funerals, 50-plus weddings. But one of the first funerals I did was for a neighbor. For an African American gentleman who was a dear friend who passed away in his 70s. And while I met with the family, like I always do before funerals, and I meet with the family and walk through kind of the entire order of service, we sit with them for hours. It's, it's a privilege to get to do this as a pastor. And I walked into the, the church that day, and I felt fully prepared that Saturday afternoon to walk through and officiate this funeral. Well, I walk into the room, and I am the only white person in the room. This was not, or Diane was there, so both of us. We were the two of us, you know, only white people in the room. And this was not unexpected. This is an African-American gentleman, African-American family. And I realized pretty quickly that not only am I the only white person in the room, I also realized that funerals at traditional black churches are different than funerals I had done in the past. In about four minutes, I realized I am in way over my head. And I'm in over my head, feeling anxious, feeling nervous, and I go over and I scan the room, and the assistant funeral director, it was a funeral, uh, uh, a funeral home that primarily handles uh, black funerals, and he comes over, he realizes I look like deer in the headlights, and he comes over and he gently grabs my arm 
And he tells me, he goes, Pastor, I'm going to walk you through this entire thing. And I'll cry, I think I will cry remembering this. I walk, and he walked me through, and he, I remember, and I you know, gave the, the eulogy, and I felt comfortable doing all the things from up front, but every step along the way, where to stand, when I'm supposed to be at the front of the line, in the back of the line, when to go forward, the benediction at the end, he literally told me every step along the way. And I remember getting done with that funeral, tracking that man down, and giving him maybe the biggest hug I have ever given anyone in my life. And I realized, looking back on that moment, how ridiculous it would have been for once I felt uncomfortable to say, you know what, like, I'm just going to do this how I know how to do it. I would have ostracized all of those folks who are in that room, as well as not honor the traditions that they had for how funerals worked in their black church tradition. So it was an opportunity for me to learn But more than anything, I look back at that gentleman, it was an opportunity for him to love me well. And now every time I get to do a funeral from a tradition that's different than, a culture that's different than my own, I will track down the funeral director. And I will look him in the eye and say, I want you to treat me like this is my first funeral. And it's hard for him every time. They're like, no, you're in charge because that's how it works. In the tradition, it's like, no, you're the one that is ultimately making all the decisions. I said, I get how that works, but today, you're in charge. You tell me where I'm supposed to stand, everything about this. And it's a gift to get to do that, but it's a learning experience every single time. And this is the call of God. It's the call to live into his story, but folks, it is not the path of least resistance to lean in to the the diverse kingdom. When the early church said it was hard, what did Paul continue to do? He didn't let them off the hook. He said, go continue to lean in, and I'm going to continue to cast vision for this. Despite your cultural differences, you're called to love each other, move towards each other, and be the brothers and sisters you are in Christ Jesus. But in order to pursue the diverse kingdom of God, we also need to name this is not how our society works. We have the opportunity to do this through our local church to recognize what it means to be the people of God living out Revelation 7-9, but it also means that we must pursue true friendship and relationship with people that are coming from backgrounds different than our own. It means seeking to not just know who folks are who are coming from different backgrounds, but truly love them well. From a church perspective, from a macro level, what this looks like is for us as a church to lean in to radical hospitality towards one another. It means that if we're doing our job as a church and doing the best job we can, we have got a long way to go. We don't do this perfectly, but what it looks like is that you walk in the doors of this church And that we have made Sunday mornings as hospitable as possible for you. But this reality, when this works, when we're doing a good job, it also means that none of you, including myself, are 100% comfortable here. Because if we've made this place 100% comfortable for you, we have catered towards one specific 
culture and miss out on being hospitable to all the other cultures represented in this room. And so when we do this well, it means that you will feel like you're swimming upstream. And so the call to to being the diverse people of God, pursuing the kingdom of God, means that we have opportunities where we sing songs in different languages. We have Hispanic heritage celebration. We struggle through singing happy birthday in sign language, even though we're not great at it, but we're getting a little bit better every single week at our sign language. It's an opportunity for us to get out of our own bubbles and move in to the big kingdom of God. But it also means that not only us as a church, but you as individuals need to lean in to this. And this means taking an interest in folks that are different than you. And so many of you do this so well. Just last week, or about a month ago, I should say, I had lunch with a friend of mine. And he always asked great questions. Didn't grow up in Atlanta. We're very different, come from very different cultures. And somehow we got talking, and this is a very basketball-heavy sermon, so sorry about that. Somehow we got talking about 1990s Georgia Tech basketball teams. And for me, growing up in Atlanta, my dad went to Tech. This is like a very central part of my childhood. And so he's asking about it, and I was like, we'll talk about this for a couple minutes. And I, I mean, I'm ready to kind of ping-pong back and ask questions to him. And he just keeps asking questions. We spent 45 minutes talking about the 1992 Yellow Jacket team. This is James Forrest. It's Travis Best. They make a run in the NCAAs. I told him about I had a bulletin board in my room where we would cut out newspaper articles of the Yellow Jackets just to date me at this point. Some of you are like, what is a newspaper? I'm not sure what that is. But I left that lunch, and he doesn't even really like sports. And I left that lunch being like, that man loved me well. He gained nothing from this. He wasn't like, oh, let me compare that back to my childhood. It was so different than his childhood. But there was an intentionality to how he loved me and a beauty to that. And that's the gospel. The path of least resistance, even if we are in a diverse church on Sunday, will be to surround yourself with people that are just like you. Your same interests, your same economic level, your same life stage, kids, no kids, your same age. But I'm here to tell you to start 2024. That's not what God's called you to do. Obviously, I'm not saying that those friendships with folks that are like you are unimportant or you can't have them. By all means, you definitely should. But in addition to those, may we be a people who are so enthralled this year, so enthralled with God's story that we find ourselves participating in it. So as we head to communion, like we do every week, this is the best place to remember God's story and continue in this call. Every Sunday, we come together, all of our cultures, men and women, young and old, and we sit at the level ground of the cross. We come bringing nothing but our sin, receive the sacrament of God's, of Christ's body and his blood, all equally in need and equally blessed. So take a moment now.